Hello, my name is Aviva Silverman, and I will be having a conversation with Siobhan Miao for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is August 1st, 2023, and this is being recorded in the East Village. Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I um, asked you how I should introduce you, and you had um, a few kinds of intro introductions. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, the name I'm, I'm usually putting down now these days, because I've had so many in my life, is uh, Sri, which is a Hindu honorific, S-R-I. It's kind of like Sir, but it doesn't really have a gender. And then Grimalkin, which is a word for an old cat, you know, an old, particularly an old female cat, elder cat. And then uh, Melody is my female persona. And then uh, Schlachthammer is uh, from my anarchist punk rock days, uh, this cartoon character I invented named Sledgehammer Sue, so it's a play on that. And then Meow is another pronoun that I use, which I use also as a surname because it's the what my cats call me, and what cats call all humans, basically. They don't say meow to any other animal, only to humans, and it means, hello, keep your distance. But, you know, when you get, really live together with them and they get to know you and everything, they drop the owl and just go, meow, which is mom, mom, you know, because that's what we are to them, you know, big, stupid cats that give them food so that's my formal name, but it's not like in legal. Uh, so it's Siobhan Meow is one of the pen names that most people know me as. And what is your relationship to cats? Well, I started rescuing them in the uh, kind of mid-90s. I got into uh, doing rescue work with them, and it just took a life of its own. And like, uh, I became pretty well known for it. Uh, I mean, even the New York Times uh, magazine did a thing, you know, about the squat and, and me with the cats, and you know, so. Uh, and I actually spent 30 years like doing that, so. But now it's like it's coming to an end because it's like I'm getting older and it's like I'm not going to be able to take care of the amount. I can't believe how many cats I used to take care of. How many were there? Like during 9-11, I had over 100 in my space. But most of them were passing through because they were like being rescued off the street and stuff like that. But... Uh, now I'm down to just the ones that have been with me their whole lives and they're really not adoptable because of that because they'd freak out if they went to a different if they went to a different place, you know. Yeah. So that they like their territory more than even their human. They want to stay in their territory. So. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was it was uh in that process, I ended up working with a veterinarian, uh, and I learned a lot of things. And I used to actually do ICU in my my apartment 
where I, I once saved a cat uh, from hepatic lipidosis, which has a 50% mortality rate. Once they turn the color of a yellow cab or a school bus, it's usually a death sentence, but I pulled this one guy back from that. You know, it usually happens when an obese cat suddenly loses a lot of weight and it, the consumption of the body fat causes stress on the liver, which causes a type of hepatitis. I was able to save this guy, and that was like amazing. But don't it, I couldn't do that now. It's like, it's like, I can't even express their anal glands anymore, like, without getting mauled, so it's like. Yeah. And you mentioned that you were living in a squat at a certain time? Yeah, this building used to be a squat. When we opened this building, it was a ru literal ruin, okay? There was, <laughs> Holes in the roof, holes in all the floors. There were three flights of stairs in a row missing. Uh, when it would snow, it would snow all the way down from the, from the doghouse all the way down to this floor. And uh, it was quite beautiful. In the springtime when it would rain, there was like moss and algae growing on the walls and stuff. And there'd be these rivulets like you're in this cave. <laughs> It's so gorgeous. And when you say we, who are the other people that helped live here? All right, there was initially me and this uh, woman named Hirta from the Netherlands. And then she recruited Steve from the school she was going to. And then we, we initially opened the building and then uh, gradually when people heard that we, we needed people, people would come. And at one point, it was almost like the United Nations here because we had people from all over Europe, from South America, you know, coming and staying from all different parts of this country, different states, you know, either passing through or staying for a while and working. And, you know, it was just a wonderful time. Because uh, what time was that? What year? This was uh, we opened the building in 1988, November 1988. So we had to do this really harsh winter with holes everywhere and no windows and no heat and no water. How did you manage? There is these little rooms in the center of the building on each floor, and we would just go into the littlest, most weatherproof room and just huddle in sleeping bags and we would go to restaurants to wash up and uh, you know eventually as you know we started you know getting jobs and stuff we would go go to like the public showers and stuff like that but we went 17 years without heat and I would say about 10 years without water, maybe a little less than that. I can't remember when we exactly we put the sewer line in, but we did that ourselves too. And that was a, quite a project because uh, we were still technically illegal when we decided to put the sewer line in. And uh, so we hired a plumber he got the permits and we started digging in the sidewalk, the 12 foot hole to get to the uh, 
main line in the middle of Avenue C when the city came, the, the, the super next door hated us so much, he just called the city right away. And so <laughs> they came over and shut it down. So fortunately it was a Friday evening, so we just made like, okay, and we put, covered the hole with plywood and stuff and said, yes, we'll be filling that in. And then we went down in the basement, we broke through the wall, where the, the, the main sewer line goes. We, we broke through the brick wall and we had to, we had to like, we used police barricades <laughs> to build like, you know, a little tunnel with supports because every time a bus or heavy vehicle went down Avenue C, it would cause cave in. <laughs> so we dug our way all the way to the middle of Avenue C tapped into the, the, it was brick, the sewer line at the time, tapped into there, put in our sewer main, patched up the hole, started filling in the big hole we dug, and it took us like a full three days, 24 hours a day working in shifts, but we did it, wow. you know, with a chain of people with buckets, you know. And like one guy would be in a tunnel filling the buckets and then passing them out and we'd dump them in the back of the basement here. It was amazing. I'm, I'm just amazed nobody got killed because it was so incredibly dangerous what we were doing, but we didn't care. We, we were like, you know, we're going to do it. And what kinds of things were people up to in the squat? Huh? What kinds of things were people up to in the squat? Like what were they doing outside? Or were they artists or musicians? Yeah, they, mostly artists. We, we were mostly artists who opened it. It's not that way anymore. It's more of a more of a like a, I don't know. People have to have jobs to to move. Now that we're co-op, like this is what I don't like about what happened is that once we became a co-op. It's like you couldn't just like uh, do sweat equity. Now people have to take out a mortgage to purchase the space. For even though it's really low price, I mean, it's not like stuff goes. Like we have to keep it at a, at a income level where it's like maybe like a hundred fifty a unit, kind hundred fifty thousand. Is it part of HDFs? Uh, huh? Is it part of HD? Uh, yeah, 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 HDFC. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we went through UHAB. Okay. But see, I was always opposed to that, but you know, we had to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we'd always be in threat of the city just taking it from us. Yeah. So. And were there other squats that you guys were in communication yes, with? Yes, yes, there was a bunch of them. There's Bullet Space, there was 7th Street, there was a bunch of them on 13th Street. Uh, yeah, they were all scattered around the neighborhood. And we, we were all like a coalition. Like, whenever, when we were actually still squats, if anybody was threatened with eviction, we had a hotline and we'd call and then we'd all show up and demonstrate and stuff. And it happened here. Like within the first year of when we opened the building, it was like, I think it was 89. It was like we were using this abandoned building next to us because this house, it was called uh, Cross Subsidy. 
the city had put aside two abandoned buildings where one would be developed for you know regular market housing and the other one would be developed for low-income housing. But the city never did that. <laughs> they just let them rot. And so we came in. This one was sturdier, like structurally, in better condition than the one next door. It was, the one next door was more of a flimsy one. This one was on this block way before a lot of the other tenements came up. Wow. You know, it's a pretty old building and it was built really well. So, but the other one was kind of all messed up. So we were using that as a dumpster because when we came in this building, this floor in the front areas was like two feet from the ceiling filled with appliances and rubbish and rubble and all kinds of stuff we had to dig out. And then on every other floor up the building, it was the same. We were digging rubble for almost a year, you know, and so we were <laughs> putting it all in this building. And we were doing it like the proper way you do it towards the walls, you know, you don't just put it in the center. But you do gradually work towards the center. And then eventually the weight just collapsed the building inward down the floors because, like I said, it had a wooden staircase where ours is, is cast iron and stone. So it just went whoosh. Wow. And it made such a noise that everybody called the fire department. And so they came and they first like evicted everybody. I was at work, I was working with scenic companies in New Jersey, just as a, they called us Gumbies. We just go do loadings and stuff, you know, whatever job they needed us to do. And, uh, I came back and I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. So I had some friends from Missing Foundation and I told them, you guys got to help us. Did you ever hear of Missing Foundation? No, I haven't. Peter have Missing? Oh, they were this uh, really in intense, like industrial noise band from the 90s. But I, I told them we need help, and so we came in the back And they here. were called Missing Foundation? Yeah. And you needed help with the floor falling in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but more, no, no, they were more like kind of thuggish. So right. that's, that's what I was asking them about. So, so we went in the back here and climbed up the fire escape, and I got back into my space and barricaded myself in there. And then, of course, they bring the uh, demolition crew to take down the building that collapsed. And they had every intention of taking this one down, too. So in order to prevent that, we were standing in the empty windows on that side. So the guy, if he wanted to hit our building, he'd have to hit us. Wow. And he wouldn't do it. He got out of the derrick and you know, said, I can't do this. And then that's how we survived that one, is like putting our lives on the line for, well, at least you know, I did, and there was this other guy, Lawrence did too. Lawrence was, mm -hmm. was in his room doing it. And uh, there, were, there were a couple other people. Are um, people that started it with you still living here? Uh, there's only one, and that's Steve. Uh, the guy I went to school was here to... Okay. Are you in touch with anyone else from that era, or did they all... No, everybody dispersed. It was like, kind of like, most people are pretty transient, you know, when they come into the city. Yeah. Like, especially, like, 
uh, the Europeans and right. stuff. But the, we, we got a lot of Colombians who wanted to stay, and, and most of them stayed. Uh, what other kinds of scenes were you a part of in the 80s when you were living here? All right, well, there is the art and the music scene, and it's like, uh, I first, uh, first person I met when I ventured into this neighborhood, because, like, I was born in Brooklyn, parents moved us to Long Island, and then to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where I lived from age seven to, like, 20. And what was that like, to be in Pennsylvania? I never liked it. I was, I liked New York. I liked the smell of New York. I liked everything about New York. I didn't like anything about Harrisburg. And uh, yeah. even though I kept going back there, because that's where like my parents were, even though why did I do that? Because they hated me. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's all kind of complicated. I ended up getting married. I came back here to go to school. I went to Pratt. And then uh, I went back, and like an idiot, I got married. How old were you? 21. Okay. Too young, too young. But it was because of the pressure from my parents. You were know? they very religious? Or what yeah, uh, yeah, stupid. No, religious, Irish Catholic Republicans. My mother made us wear Barry Goldwater buttons when we were little kids in grade school, and anti-abortion fucking bracelets. I hated her for that even back then. Mm. <laughs> so. Uh, Was your childhood? Um, did you have other people to connect to during that time, or? Not, no, not till I got to. Uh, high school, not until I started working at this pet store and I was hanging out with people who worked there who were more of my uh, political sensibilities. So what were your politics at that time? Uh, just against the whole Republican fucking, like, remember Jack Webb's dragnet? Oh, okay. That kind of fucking stupid. <laughs> Just think of the mizzen scene of that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's what, there was a lot of that in Pennsylvania, and there still is now, there's a rebirth of it. So, uh, no, I was like more like into the hippie movement, anti war, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And anti authority, basically, because mm -hmm. uh, that's all I, I had been having trouble with authority like my whole life because of being trans, you know. I knew when I was seven years old, but I couldn't even talk about it mm. because I'd get punished, you know, and it's like, you know, you don't, it really messed me up. I think that's one part of how I got so multiple is like I had to be all these different personas just to deal with the trauma coming from people who shouldn't be even traumatizing me at all, you know. Totally. And do you want to describe what being multiple means? Yeah, it's, uh, it comes from dissociative identity disorder. It's one of the uh, processes, I should say. That's a good way to describe it. One of the processes of uh, dissociative identity disorder, which is a defense mechanism 
for extreme traumatic stress. Okay, uh, like my mother was psycho. I mean, I remember when I was five years old living on Long Island in, in Williston Park, five years old, she would make us all go to bed at something like four or five in the afternoon. And we couldn't understand that. But she, she'd be so, she wouldn't talk to us for like three days. Mm -hmm. And when she, when she, a lot of times she would do really bad, nasty bad. Like one time she set my brother's fingers on fire because he was sucking them, you know. Wow. Uh, supposedly, I fell down the basement steps when I was a toddler, but then I saw how she would kick the dogs down the basement steps and kind of put it together like uh, in my head that maybe that's what happened uh, because of the, uh, the kind of psychic damage I suffered, you know, from that. So, uh, yeah, my, my limbic system is just a crater. So, so you're, you're trying to determine like what used to be there from studying the crater. <laughs> But anyway, so yeah, I, whoever I was when I was born, that person died. And so I had to reassemble for my entire life without having any fucking game plan or understanding about it. I had to assemble a persona and it ended up being persona, me or personas, you know, because I had to do it to survive. So I became really good at mirroring people. Mm. You know, that's how I learned how to, how to act in society. And uh, it worked mostly until like I started doing it too much and it became like kind of almost like a really creepy vampirization of the person. You know, I take their entire personality into me and become that person which is flattering at first to them, but after a while, it's really creepy. Can you remember a particular time that you were doing that? Mm, that would be from college through the marriage, you know. Uh, it's, it's weird because it's like, I was so many different people, even when I was in grade school and coming up. I remember like in seventh grade, I was really like on it with like, schoolwork, writing for the newspaper, school newspaper, you know, doing all these things and being really together. And then like, I remember like going to college and just going almost fucking catatonic. Mm. Like, like, oh, just dissociation, <laughs> I, I like, I describe it this way is when you see something that should strike you blind, but the message doesn't get to your brain in time. <laughs> so you just leave your body and you're literally on the ceiling looking at what's going on. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're not, you're watching yourself, watching the trauma, okay? So it's like, uh, yeah, there's stuff like that. 
But then it, it really developed into like full-blown like multiple personality because even though, see, it's not like the Hollywood version where there's this big amnesia and all that. No, there's usually a manager who's keeping track of it, everything, although not always present acting, you know. But at least with me, it's that way. I remember one time I was out with a friend. This is when I was, the marriage was breaking apart. I was out with this uh, male friend of mine drinking and I got shit-faced, literally staggering. And Darwin was his name, he's going, uh, you shouldn't drive home, give me your keys. And I said, no, I'm okay. And immediately, boom, stone cold sober. It was like the driver persona took over, was totally sober. I don't know how that happens physically, but that's what, it blew him away. He was like, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't understand it at all. Yeah, it's an amazing survivalism to suddenly be sober. Yeah, yeah. So, and there are other examples. Like later, when I, I, I did, I finally got to the point of I had to transition or die, and that was Melody versus the the male persona that I was supposed to be, but really never was. So that was a war, but she won, thank goodness, because... What did the war look like? Huh? What did the war look like? It was like a lot of uh, sensation, inner body sensation, that like there was someone in me that was literally transforming my body, even without hormones, just saying, fuck this, we're not doing this anymore, we're not doing this stupid male shit anymore. We can't take it. We even were allergic. See, I'm using the plural, but I'm talking about multiples. I was even allergic to the testosterone my body was producing. I literally, I couldn't go to a gym and just like lift weights because I'd go into a roid rage and get really violent and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was one sign you know, that something was wrong. And so what age were you when you um, were at that point of wanting to lean into right, it, it happened in a couple different stages because yeah. it was like 85, 86 is when the marriage was crashing and burning and that was traumatic because I got, I, I was sitting with a shotgun in my mouth and uh, there were a lot of suicidal gestures, and then finally a, a more serious one that got me uh, locked up in a state hospital against my will. And then there was coming, you know, coming back, and same thing is still going on, and we're still cohabitating. And I came home one night and caught her with the guy she was with, and. That's when I really dissociated. I left my body. I'm watching all that shit. And it just kept getting worse and worse. Until, like I, I, like I said, it was institutionalized. And then, like, I finally came out of that. Got a, a room in this little town by the river. A really nice room, actually. In the Doyle Hotel in Duncan. And, uh... I was writing a letter to a friend and I go, you know, uh, 
what Bill's problem is, is he's a girl. And that's when it like, boom, because I had been going through this all my life. It was like when I was seven, I had a crush on this cute guy in my class, got the shit smacked out of me for it. And then, you know, uh, then I, I read about Christine Jurgensen and go, wow. And then I'd read, I'd see like uh, the Three Faces of Eve and go to the library. I think I was in seventh grade when I, I got the actual big fat book with all the jargon in it and read that cover to cover because I was interested, you know, what's that going on with me? But other than that, there really wasn't that much. I mean, to look, to read up on or anything like that. So you're just kind of like floundering. So naturally you're going, I'm trying to be normal to get my parents' approval and shit and get married and have a kid and all that stuff. But it was just, <laughs> how wrong was it to get married? On the wedding day, my entire face broke out in boils. Okay, I should have I should have paid attention, but mm. no, that's dissociate. The bad part of dissociation <laughs> is that you don't pay attention to the pain when you should be. But anyway, finally, like I, it finally it hit me, like because I was writing it down, and then I decided I have to get out of here. First, I start trying to transition in the boondocks of Pennsylvania, which was like really scary because they, they were still KKK people in this particular county. Wow. I mean, so I would say like, I would be wearing makeup and, and kind of girly clothes, but I'd say, oh, I'm into Twisted Sister, you know, and that would be okay then. But then that started wearing thin and I had to leave. Plus, there were no, there was no psychiatrist or anybody who knew what I was going through or what, what to do about it in in that area. There's no place to go. So I, it was either going to be Philly, which I hate Philly, disgusting city, full of fascists, cops, you know, or back to my home, New York. So I decided to come back here, and that's when, like, I did my first thing, my first try. And this was all uh, the underground way, where you're not really going to regular doctors. You're going to these kind of, like, iffy doctors that they're doing it, and you're paying them cash, and it's like, you what know. What kinds of things were you going to them for? I was going to this one woman for hormone injections, and I was going to this other doctor for plastic surgery on my nose and my cheeks. How much money was that at the time? It was lots. It was thousands. Then, then when you get into the electrolysis, that was that was in a later stage. I mean, I was doing it at all times. I was trying, but it, it takes forever. And uh, it's not always like that, that beneficial to your face, but yeah. This is why I, I'm so, so worried about them stopping children uh, from taking the uh, puberty blockers mm -hmm. because I don't want any kid to go through what I went through. It's a horror.
And if, if you're lucky enough, kid, to have parents that understand and listen to you and know what's going on with you and, and take you to the right doctors and everything to see to it that you get through it in one piece and healthy, nobody has a right to stand in front of that, you know, and stop it. So anyway, uh, yeah, so you came to the city and you found these doc doctors that were... Yeah, yeah, so I did that that way because it was like, you know, I didn't even know about welfare stuff because I, I, I just come out of Pennsylvania and they, they let you starve to death there. They don't give a shit. So I didn't know anything about the great, you know, social net here. Uh, but anyway, so I went through that, worked this, this minimum wage job, lived in Brooklyn for a while, Wrote a found, discovered the Howard Stern show on the radio I had in Brooklyn. And uh, I was just laughing my ass off, like, for weeks listening to this in the morning. So I eventually, they had this, they had this thing called Dial-A-Date, and they, they couldn't find anybody to be in it for this particular episode they were doing. So... I quick dashed off a letter to them, said, I'm a transsexual, I'll be the dial a date. And then ran down to Coney Island, took a picture in one of those booths, you know, mm -hmm. sent that in with it. And they called me in and it went, it went really good. It was like they liked me and uh, they actually had me do a show with them at Madison Square Garden for New Year's Eve. 1986 for 1987. What did the show entail? Huh? What did the show entail? It was a beauty pageant, Miss Howard Stern, and of course I won it. But I really just, I went nuts. I went, I went, got this old, bought a used wedding dress, cut it off real nice, and you know, did this, did this performance where I play uh, tequila on a saxophone and dance along the stage. And I did the bathing suit competition where I had a salami in my, you know, bathing suit. And I had this hunting knife. I started chopping it up and throwing it at Lisa Sliwa. And, you know, slipped on a watermelon somebody threw on the stage, which was, I did this incredible dance. And yeah, so I won that. Leslie West was playing and all this stuff. And it was great. And the, the show sold out like in an hour within announcement that tickets were on sale. So it was a pretty big thing, but I can't find a recording of it anywhere. So sad. <laughs> I know. Isn't that? I, it's all the effort I put into that. So anyway, I did this process where I'm coming out on this really big radio show. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking shitloads of abuse on the show, but that was okay because it was like creating a sympathy in the audience, which actually saved my life because I was in a section living in the section of Brooklyn where people get lynched, you know, when they're they're too different and the neighbors don't like you. What part of Brooklyn was that? Huh? What part of Brooklyn was that? Gravesend. <laughs> so, but anyway, it's like everybody knew me from the show, so nobody would touch me. Nobody would harm me. There would be people who would actually come to my rescue, you know, 
And that was all because of the show. That was a benefit that I got from that. Because my transition was really ugly. <laughs> it was like, I wasn't like, I, and I had met some like girls who were like, whoa, it's like Barbara Eden with a cock, you know? Like, I'm going like, whoa, how did you do that? <laughs> but I was not, never gonna be that. What do you mean by ugly? Huh? What do you mean by ugly when you said you're... By not like being the perfect girl. I mean, like, I would used to walk, I, like, I remember like one time my daughter came to visit me and go, and we're walking down the street and go, see that girl there? She's got my body. She got my body. And it's like, that's how I felt. I see someone who, it's from the mirroring too that I used to do. It's like, I, I used to like mirror women a lot. Like women who I thought were attractive. Now, my standards are not the same as everybody else's, you know, but. Were there particular? There were qualities that I saw in them that I wanted, I thought were really cool. You know? What kind of qualities? Oh, androgyny was a big one. Like, uh, Kimbra, who I fell head over, that's later, it was, I fell head over heels in love with Kimbra Baller. Mm -hmm. Because the first time we met, was at ABC No Rio at a heel benefit. And I was sitting there trying to do caricatures to raise money. And so the last night of the benefit, she, she suddenly appears and it's like, I, she comes to me and he says, draw my picture. And I go, I've seen Satan and she is a woman. And could, Kimber's like so cool looking. I mean, like totally has this masculine aura that's amazing. And I have a good picture of her on my phone. I'll show that to you later, you know, where it's like pretty close to, to what I saw when I first saw her. So I, I, I really felt, and of course we ended up, you know, for two weeks, you know, messing around and stuff. And I went even further deeply into a head over heels thing with her. Like literally, like the first night I spent with her, the day after I was like walking, the sidewalk was like marshmallow. <laughs> it was like, but anyway, that's pheromones. And I still have, you know, the gonads to create and, and the reactions like you know the thing about pheromones is you got to be really careful with them because they can really lead you down the wrong path like that was my first marriage but with Kemba we ended up being friends you know and stuff and it's mm -hmm. a really good relationship but anyway back to where I was yeah you were talking about um surgeries and kind of like modeling yourself after people in the street oh right right with with wesser the messer that was the surgeon's nickname in what the community wesser the messer oh god okay <laughs> <laughs> so anyway i survived that and yeah it was all like the black market drugs <laughs> i don't know uh there was no no other way to go i mean i couldn't afford like the 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 real doctors. I didn't have any money, yeah. especially after electrolysis, you know, so, and rent and all that other shit. So, uh, yes, yeah, so like 
I ended up homeless, basically. I moved up to I moved up to Manhattan to be near the radio station on Madison Avenue. So I, I was up on uh, 89th and Broadway in an SRO called the Bell Nord, and uh, that was pretty gruesome. There was this uh, guy who was terrorizing everybody on my floor who was late with their rent. They hired this goon to terrorize people who were late with their rent. And so he started in with me and we get into these real brawls. And uh, I actually was the first, after the first brawl we had, I was the first one to call the police. So the police were talking to me. I got my story in first, so they took him downtown. And I went downtown too to talk to the ADA to make sure they prosecuted him. But then I'm walking back, and I, I used to walk, you know, that far a lot in the city. But I would be walking back, and I was like, really going, like, that isn't enough. He's going to get out, and he's going to be up to the same shit again. So I got back to the Bell Nord. I opened. There was a window in the hallway that was right next to the window to his room. His door was locked, so I went in the window that, to his room, opened the door, called everybody on the floor. I said, let's throw all his shit out. Because he had a lot of shit that he stole from people that yeah. got evicted and shit. So we took everything he owned, his ID, everything, threw it in garbage bags. It just so happened to be trash night that night. Oh. Threw it all out. Yeah. And he got out of jail. He was fucking insane. So I couldn't stay at Bellinord anymore, which I was ready to leave anyway. So yeah. that's when I ended up homeless. I ended up sleeping in the basement of ABC No Rio, and that's where I met Hirta. She was modeling for a drawing session there, and uh, Hirta wanted to do a squat too. Like, one thing I gotta say. Yeah. When I first met Kemra, it was like lightning bolts, okay? When I first met Hirta, same thing. I was shaking while I was drawing. It, it's just, I just knew I had to go talk to her. And mm -hmm. we ended up opening this building, mm -hmm. which I opened here because it's around the corner from Kemra, okay? So you can see how... Everything, yeah. So anyway, squatting, I had to go be a guy again. I didn't have any money for any hormone, nothing, you know. So I just fell back into, uh, it was disappointing, you know, because I still couldn't, I still, I was like kind of crazy too. I even went to like NA to try to deal with it that way, you know. And no, you can't go to N.A. to deal with being trans. All right, so I learned that. Then finally 9-11 came and like, I re it, that really smacked me. And I go like, if I don't do it now, I'm never gonna do it. And I can't believe how many like people who transitioned at, my, at the age I did, when I see docs on them, it's like the same thing. Mm. It's like they reach this point, I'm gonna kill myself. So I actually ended up, uh, my brother gave me a, 
a coat python for protection because he was afraid I was going to get killed up here. But I ended up playing Russian roulette with it, and I told I told him here you have to take the gun back, wow. you know, because it's it's not safe. And uh, he helped me pay for the surgery. That's amazing. Yeah. Such a loving thing to do. I know, he's a good guy. He's the one my mother set his fingers on fire. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, wow. so anyway, then now I'm going to like a really good guy, Toby Meltzer in Arizona. Did a beautiful job, beautiful job. Uh, but, you know, I was actually there. I can't believe he. he I was like, hey, can you like uh, break my rib cage and reset it? Can you like cut like so much out of my legs and re make them shorter? You know, because I wanted to get like the image I had of myself the whole time. Like mm -hmm. if I hadn't gone through puberty as a male. But that was, see, that's how bad my uh, body dysphoria was mm -hmm. at the time. It's like... Uh, and did you have other people to talk to about this? Mm -mm. No. No, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, I started going to the center, but that was really late after the actual where... First it was I was cat-sitting. I was cat... Here's how... I was cat-sitting at a person who had cable TV, and I had see, I was watching the movie Welcome to the Dollhouse. Ginger Snaps, and yeah, I think it was those two. There might have been a third one, but it just like whacked me. And it's like, it's like, you know, both about puberty, which I never got to really do right, you know. And I love Ginger Snaps because the one girl, like, for her puberty, she turns into this werewolf, you know. And it's like, you know, I felt just like that. So it's like that helped give Melody the power to start taking over. And like I said, it was this internal fight that, you know, was like kind of ripping me apart. But I knew that she would win and we just stuffed the boy down. Because she wasn't real. He wasn't the real one. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, then it went through those other things. Like, I remember getting my whole beard waxed off and having someone film it, you know. Mm. Like, that was fun. But, you know, then I got the surgery and it was so much better afterwards. It was so much fucking better. Like, better, better than fucking hormones. The first time I did hormones, that was great. Because you're seeing things totally, you're seeing colors that you never saw before. Wow. It's like, you know. I've it, never heard someone describe that before. Yeah, that's what it was for me. It was like, the, yeah, it, it was getting my first bra, that was like really fun. But I, I'm, I'm just this little kid, this little girl who has no parents, nobody to guide her, you know. She, she wakes up and she's like, you know, 30, and she doesn't know what 30 is. She's still, she's 14. Yeah. And then, like, so, so now, like, 
my age now is more like 20 to 30. Mm -hmm. But I'm in the body of a crone. So I miss girlhood, I miss maidenhood, I miss motherhood. I went directly to cronehood, you know. But you mentioned you have a child, or? But as much as I wanted to be their mother, I wasn't. Oh, okay. Gotcha. No, I stayed home with the kids while she worked, but she didn't like that. Who, who's she? I'm not going to tell Oh, you. sure, sure. It's sure. my ex-wife. Okay, yeah. Uh, it was horrible. Yeah. It was hard. She didn't want to be a lesbian. I remember, I remember the first time I broached the subject, I didn't even want to mention trans. I said, would you have married me if I was black? And she said, no way, and I knew then. Okay, this, is, this shit's over. It's going downhill. But because of the kids, you're hanging on. Uh, it was yeah. terrible. I had, to, I had to just leave and leave the kids with her, even though she wanted me to take the kids. I had to leave them with her because they would have been put in social services, you know, mm -hmm. being homeless. So, Do you have any relationship to them now? Mm-mm. No. Uh, the younger one, Helene, came up and lived with me for a couple years after I got, right after I got surgery. But I had to do the parent thing and push her, because I didn't want to become really dependent, have this codependent thing start happening between us. Yeah. I wanted her to live on her own because you have to do that with kids, you know. And so that got kinda fucked up. But you know, I still I, I, I love her. I, I tell them I love them, but you know, I they never call her anything like that. Um the older one is really pissed because I killed her dad. You know. And I wasn't really too like uh sensitive about explaining it to her mm -hmm. because I had such antipathy towards that whole experience yeah. of being male that I was happy that he was dead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, uh, poof. Mm -hmm. But she didn't, she, she didn't take it right, you know. Of course, you know, she loved her dad, you know. She, she, the younger one, didn't really know me that well because she was only about two, I think, when I left. So. Yeah. And um, while living here throughout the years, what, what types of jobs did you have? Mostly labor, manual labor, which I grew to love because it's like, not only are you exercising every day, you're getting paid to exercise. So uh, I like working the set companies. I, I uh, worked moving companies. Uh, anything where I could also glean materials to work on the house with for free. Mm -hmm. That's where the set companies plywood out the ass. You know, every time you you struck a set, there was all this plywood and stuff they would throw out and you'd just take that home. Uh, there is a, 
I mean, I've done I've done short order cook, like at a, a Bob's Big Boy type of restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, never thought I'd do that, but I got really good at it. <laughs> uh, donuts, making donuts mm-hmm. on the grave graveyard shift. You know, that was a horrible job. Uh, all kinds, of, all kinds, of, whatever crummy job, demolition. You yeah. know that did that. Uh, then I would do uh, cartoons for Screw Magazine sometimes, get get a little extra money that way. But no, I, I was never rich. My art never really sold for lots of money, so I stopped. And your art was mostly cartoons, or? Mm, no, it was all kinds of stuff, but okay, uh, cartoons play? paid, actually. And then I got into cat sitting when I started rescuing cats. And then I kind of became a cat expert from rescuing all those cats. And so people started calling me to cat sit more and more. And that became a really decent income. Uh, until, and then I would do construction. Like I would be painting, like I painted a house on Grove Street. And that's where I really, my back really went out. Uh, the original damage started when, uh, many years before the actual having to go to the hospital. But it was like, we had found this giant column that we thought we could use to like, for like, support for, for the floors. Mm-hmm. Where you don't want to have a, a dividing wall, you want to have like open space, but you need these columns with yeah. a beam to so we found this giant cast iron column in the rubble of a building that had just been demolished up Avenue C. We took a shopping cart, we put this gigantic heavy monster thing on it. And we're wheeling it down Avenue C. There's something like six or seven of us all around it. I'm like holding the handle and steering it. And then all of a sudden the thing starts crushing and the column is appearing it's going to roll off and roll into somebody's car so everybody runs away and leaves me holding the damn thing and i'm there trying to like wrestle it to the ground so that it doesn't roll and get us all arrested Mm. so that was the first thing that i knew oh man i think i fucked something up okay and this is like, I mean, I'm talking, the work I did, I would be carrying girders and joists, like 12-foot joists on my shoulder, 10 blocks from a dumpster. Wow. You know, so it's like, that's the kind of work. 100-pound bags of concrete. That's why I said I had to be the guy again, you know. So I'm doing that work, but then the real killer was I'm painting this house on Grove Street. And I'm doing a really good job, but I'm standing on a stoop one day and I start to walk down the stoop and it feels like someone pushed me, I swear to God. And I'm airborne and I turn to right myself to land on my feet. And that's when it went ding and I could, so still I didn't do anything about it. I'm going like, eh, it'll, it'll heal itself. And I'm getting sciatica, and it's go, you know, and that's starting to hurt more and more, and be more and more constant. And then all of a sudden, I'm getting drop foot, so I have to go to the doctor, and they go, oh, we have to cut, we have to do a discectomy. And I say, okay, 
let's just do it. And so they do it and that goes fine. And pretty soon I'm up on my feet again, like, and I'm doing work again. And then within a year, the same thing happens again in the same spot. And this time their drop foot's really bad. And so they go, we have to do a laminectomy and a discectomy. And what they never told me about the laminectomy is they take the spinal process completely out of your back. That's the fin, the, the fin that you can feel. They, they actually cut that out of the spinal column, remove it so that your actual spinal cord, well, it's in a sheath of myelin or whatever that is, is exposed though. And they can't put it back in because it might get spurs if it tries to reattach. So I didn't know about this. And I didn't know that the muscles that were attached to that spinal process are just cut and you have nothing support. I have nothing supporting my torso anymore. So like I've got this thing that happens in this exact type of scenario where you have two surgeries so close together it's called failed back syndrome and it's just chronic pain for the rest of your life plus gradual deterioration so it's like you know I'm I have to fight tooth and claw every day just to keep moving so that I don't just end up bedridden yeah and I'm on like I'm on like uh serious pain meds like fentanyl transdermal patches and oxycodone and without that i can't walk so yeah we just had a whole bunch of horrible shit happen where for some reason for like four months we couldn't get transdermal patches in the city even the most legit doctors prescriptions that they just weren't giving them to the pharmacists. They were, the manufacturers were not bringing them to the pharmacies. Yeah. So I had to go, I didn't, even feel, I didn't even have any kind of detox. I just went back to the back pain, the really bad stuff. You know, there's no such thing as like a detox. It's just, oh, default to bad pain. I had a friend of mine named Chloe, a, another transgender, person who she her back got wrecked by this AIDS early AIDS drug that rotted the bones wow. and she was beyond even pain meds beyond surgery beyond pain meds she threw herself in front of a subway car wow. and died you know uh, yeah I was going to ask what it was like to be here during the AIDS epidemic during the what? AIDS epidemic. Oh my God, so many people died. My brother got AIDS, uh, the one who paid for my surgery. <clears throat> but he, uh, he survived. He, he got the right medicine at the right time. And he, it was touch and go sometimes. I remember seeing him really gone one time. It scared the shit out of me. But he's still going. He's like, what? three years, four years younger than me, and he's still working for like the uh, PennDOT's environmental protection group where he goes and like 
to a site and determines the effect on the environment and whether they can do it or not. So he's like got a really good job and shit and he's like still active and everything. But I've seen, in the, I knew a lot of people in this neighborhood that aren't here anymore because of yeah. AIDS, you know. And it was, it was really grim. How did it shape your social life? Well, I did not really socialize that much. Yeah. Like, I was always, uh, <laughs> I was alienated from the word go from just being trans, you know, and not. Were there any parties or social places that you Oh, went? yeah, yeah, but it, it wasn't like I was, like, close with anybody. Gotcha. You know, no, it, it, it was always that kind of thing. I know this person, but I don't. You know, I don't hang out with them. Yeah. What um, places do you socialize at? What places did you socialize at when you were going out to hang with people? Were there clubs? And I didn't have that. I you, didn't have that. No. no, there was not that for people like me back back that far. Huh. And did you um, do any um, things with music or? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have a CD that I, I uh, started working on in 94 uh, that's on YouTube. Okay. It's called Pep Girls, P-E-P-G exclamation point R-L-Z, and the title of the CD is Down and Dirty. And this is another thing I was deprived of as a child. I always wanted to play bass. My parents wouldn't let me have a bass. They made me start with clarinet, and then I bought my own saxophone with my own hard-earned paper money, you know, because I hated the clarinet. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't like the sax either. I wanted to play bass. And so finally I got myself a bass and an amp and all that cool stuff. Yeah. And this is Melody's realm. And I learned to play the bass in one year well enough to write all the music for the CD and then the lyrics I wrote, you know, too. And then what was left was like, we finally found a drum, drummers are the hardest to find. This guy from Canada, I, I used to work for Mark Costavi, I forgot to tell you that too. That, that was my art job. I was a studio assistant, but I hung out with his brother a lot who had a punk rock band called Youth Gone Mad, and we used to tour different states, like in this area. And I would play the pixie sax, which was just the mouthpiece, you know, because that's what I wanted to do. But once I got the bass and I wrote all these songs, Paul happens to be a brilliant fucking musician and engineer. So uh, he did the sound. We got this drummer, who, I don't know where Paul found, from Canada somewhere, and Jack Pedler was his name. I had this little beginner drum kit that I got for real cheap from a friend from Kimber's band. And so we, we did laid the tracks, the bass and the drum, all in one go, and by the time we were done. Peddler had beaten the rims of that drum kit oval. <laughs> so 
that's how good he was. And uh, so we laid that. Then I went to all the friends of Kembra's musician friends, mm -hmm. and also some that I knew, like Simon Chartier, who was one of the first people I met when I moved back to the city. Got all these different guitar players to do, oh wait, Jeff from our house did all the rhythm guitar on every track. But then I got all these individual, like, kind of like, you know, really good lead guitar players, like Samoa, uh, Bill Caivano from uh, Monster Magnet, and uh, Simon Chartier, uh, just a bunch of different people from with different, wildly different styles of music, each doing a song as the lead guitar. And then we had to fly the whole thing to California to this vocalist because I was, at the time, had no confidence in my own ability to sing. Mm. So we had to get a woman who could sing all the songs. Although we have Kembra on a couple songs on that CD too. So it turned out really good, actually. It turned out really, really, really good for a beginner project. And now I want to do another one before I die, where I sing on it. And I've been singing and dancing in the street ever since my last cat died, the, the last cat that died in my house. Because when I grieve, I have to. See, music I use now to combat the chronic pain because it always worked. I remember when I was playing the bass and I'd be leaning up against the cabinet, the vibration would go right into that little wound on, in my spine and go right up my, to my brain and just endorphin city. You know? So now I want to do like this album that is that, that will create endorphins in people's heads that will kill their chronic pain. I love that. Is there, um, do you want to collaborate with anyone or? I want to, I, I don't know how to find people now because like the first album was 30 years ago and none of those people are around anymore. Yeah. And this is what I mean about socializing. You, you can't really socialize because people have their own lives and they disappear eventually. Mm -hmm. So it's like nobody's in it for life, you know? So, so it's, yeah, I want, I need, I need a drummer. I need a bass player, preferably who've been playing together for a while and are really good with each other, and a lead guitar player, and also a sampler, a person who knows sampling and sound engineering. Because yeah. there's things I want to I like make a rhythm out of the MRI. There's eight hours of MRI sounds some genius figured out how to record and put on YouTube. And I want to take that and, and sample it and break it down into all the different sounds and then like tweak it, make yeah. it, tone them, and then compress them and then create a drum machine yeah. with those sounds but still have a live drummer playing with it, you know. And then, uh, see, the whole thing's about the funk stick, you know, I got into uh, like Parliament really early in college, like uh, George Clinton and the Mothership Connection and James Brown. And so there's the funk stick. It's like, I describe it. You got to watch uh, this funny video of Grand Funk when Mark Farner, he's jamming. 
this song they're playing in Hershey, Pennsylvania at the, the public television station there back in the 70s. All of a sudden you see Mark Farner get hit with the funk stick. He just like hits the synchronization while he's playing and singing and all of a sudden he just goes stupid, you know. <laughs> You see it in his face, he's, he's in ecstasy because he just got an endorphin burst, you know. That's what I'm talking about. It's, you can see it with uh, Angus Young of ACDC. I mean, when he was a kid, and he's, he can make his guitar talk. And he's like, that isn't, he's not faking that stuff. He's literally in an endorphin, like, frenzy, you know. And it's, he's stopping around, he's walking on his knees, you know, it's like, wow. you got to see it to believe it. And that's, and you know, anybody who, who's done it knows what I'm talking about. I had the, it really hit me when, when on the very last song on the Pep Girl CD, I did that with Tia Sprocket. Uh, she, she played with Luscious Jackson and Sex Pod. And then she, she went west to try to do some country, but she's another like genius musician. She's a lesbian. I was still in my guy body. I had a huge crush on her. Nothing was ever gonna happen that way. But what was better was it happened musically. It's like, I was always playing rote, really stiff, what I memorized, okay? I couldn't really like, ad-lib it or, you know, improvise that well. But when Tia played with me, something about her guitar, the way she, the way she was playing, it just like, boom, all of a sudden I'm just loosening up completely and just rolling with it. So, so you have the first track of the bass I did, did with her on drum, which was really rote. But then the second one I did, because we did two, two bass tracks. Second one I did with her playing lead guitar is where I loosened up finally. Mm -hmm. And that was like pure orgasm. You know, it was beautiful. Wow. Better than any any sex or any of that. So I, you know, I never really thought too much about sex after that, you know. That, that kind of experience was so far superior. And I want to get back to that again. I really hope you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just got, I know I can sing, I, I've got so many covers now I can do. <laughs> like I can sing Zombie, you know, no problem. I, I never thought I'd be able to sing that song, but it's like, must be my Irish alleles that can yodel like that. How does it go? How does Zombie it's, go? It's uh, da, uh, Mother head hangs slowly, child slowly taken. When violence causes silence, we must be mistaken.
the mother's breaking heart is taken sober. When violence causes silence, who have we mistaken? It's the same old theme since 
the word is betrayal trauma. That's the other thing, you know, of which I have a lot of damage from, you know, mother, wife, people I work with. But how much do I contribute to that? Well, it's not always something I can, it's like being autistic, you know. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe you're scared of me because I'm, I'm throwing different genders in your face all the time, you know. Like what I just did, I mean, I used my male voice combined with the female voice to do that song, and I think that's fucking incredible. Even, I don't know how it sounds, because I don't, I, I'm just singing with the music, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I'm doing a punk band, the reason I figured this all out is because I, I realized, like, when I go to these these gigs in the park or a gig in a club where I'm in the audience, mm -hmm. I can scream and sing louder than the loudest amplified band without a microphone. So I should be able do this. Wow, yeah. And I was wondering, you know, you, you told me when I first met you that it was really important to you to leave this record, and I wanted to know more about... Um, yeah, because the, the most important thing is that... I'm, I, I don't know how to... I'm very upset at what's going on in this country. I never, even in my worst days, it wasn't this bad. Not, I remember when I first started transitioning in the city, my friend got me a bus person's job at the Museum of Modern Art. How, how progressive do you think they are? I had to change in a broom closet. Okay. I, I never thought it would get... Uh, all right, that's kind of funny, you know. It's like, you know, I'm serving Buck Henry coffee and, you know, with sunglasses on and making a face because of that. All right, but not the type of hatred and directed at children. That's like, I mean, that's like the worst of all the bullying I went through growing up as, as a girly boy. The beatings, all that shit is coming back to afflict a whole generation of innocent kids. And I, I can't, I can't bear that. And I, I just want to let them know somehow that they'll get through it. And if they're not safe where they are, to get somewhere safe, where they can be themselves as soon as they can, you know. So it's like it shames me what's going on in this country. It's like, uh, you know, I, like I said, when I was taking all the crap on the show, you know, I was doing it in, in good humor because it's like, it was bringing attention because, and, and bringing sympathy, you know, because this is, you know, it, even though, I mean, in real life, like, he wasn't really being mean, it was just a shtick, okay, but, the thing was, it, it, it like brought attention that wasn't there before, and a different kind that wasn't there before. 
And then the next thing he had, uh, Morton Downey. Do you remember that talk show guy smoking cigarettes the whole time? He started having transsexuals on every show. It was like, he was like uh, Maury Povich or Jerry Springer type of guy, gotcha. a predecessor to them. And he'd have transsexuals on all the time. And then it became this thing. You know, it just gathered its own, like a snowball. And, and then you start, eventually you get to RuPaul's show. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful thing. It's going on everywhere. Everybody's, everybody's like, you know, Hey, we finally made it, you know, we, we, we can get married. We can, ch we can change our gender and use the bathroom we're supposed to use, you know. We can change our names. It's like, <clears throat> now all of a sudden, you got these fucking psychopaths saying, no, you can't, you know. I mean, and because there's so few of us, we're, we're a real minority, it's, it's, we don't got the numbers, you know, to actually knock these people out of their office through voting. <clears throat> I don't know, I, I don't know what to think about it anymore. I, I'm like gobsmacked, to tell you the truth. I never thought I'd see this today. Never thought it. And it's like, I mean, how can anybody hate drag performers? Yeah, I mean, people that are Republican <laughs> hate any kind of play with gender. I just don't get it. I mean, I'm, I really don't understand it. But see, this is the thing. I didn't understand it when I was a little kid, why people were so weirded out about it. Yeah. Because I was just born that way. It's like, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. <coughs> yeah, I, I just want, I, I don't want to ever hear about another transgender kid killing themselves. I want them to know that, you know, there are places in this country that are safer to be and that they should go there. You know, it's just one of them, this city. And I sure as hell don't want to hear any more about any transgender person being murdered. You know, I mean, we're the, we're the minority that still gets lynched, you know? I mean, shit. I remember during the demonstrations uh, for housing for the squats, you know, when we'd have demonstrations or riots in the park, I remember, like, I was still known for that radio show. I remember going to one, completely dressed in, like, you know, welding, welding clothing and, and heavy work boots and big welder's gloves, like, dressed with a hard hat, dressed for a riot, okay? But when I got there, I had this idea, I'm just going to scream, like I'm being mutilated at the top of my lungs and I started doing that and it freaked the cops out so much that six of them came, picked me up bodily, carried me over all the fences, those little railing fences in Tompkins Square Park out 
And then they were trying to get the handcuffs on me, but I had these big welder gloves and I had my, my hands, you know, gripped like this and they're trying to, and they can't get them. They can't get them on me. But they handled me with kid gloves. I mean, I, it was, I never was lifted so, so gently and weightlessly by anything before. But nowadays, they're not that way. There's hatred in their actions and in their attitudes. Like they want to kill you. And that's, how do we get there? What did we do? Did we do anything to them? Last thing I did, there was a bunch of Christians doing a little uh, demonstration in the park just recently, like, you know, with their little band, their band and everything, and, and trying to get people to join, trying to convert people. And I started, <laughs> I just started, while the band was playing, I started scre screaming at the top of my lungs, singing at the top of my lungs, Glycerine Queen by Susie Quattro, <laughs> you know over the band, you know, it's just to, uh, and then Suffragette City on top of that. And, you know, it was just my, a one person protest against this religious group, allowing itself to be politicized that way to attack other minorities, you know. What, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add? before we end today? Like what? If anything else comes to mind that you'd like to share? Life is great. Life is? Life is great. It's like, you gotta find something to laugh at every day. You gotta sing and dance every day. And if you can get people to smile, then you've done a mitzvah. So the whole thing is, how many mitzvahs can you do in a day? And a mitzvah a day keeps mental illness at bay. <laughs>